Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Ingersoll and AgriSolutions. For more information about Ingersoll, visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. That's I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L-T-I-L-L-A-G-E.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In this episode, Frank Lesnar, founding editor of No-Till Farmer, sits down at the 2019 National No-Tillage Conference with Alan Brooks, a pioneering no-till vegetable farmer from Wisconsin. Alan talks about how he and his father got started no-tilling in the 1970s, and some of the ways that no-tilling vegetables is different from no-tilling commodity crops, including why he plants sweet corn for six weeks straight, owns five sprayers, and has to deal with mud control. And without further ado, here are Frank and Alan. Well, today we're talking with uh, Alan Brooks from Marcuson, Wisconsin. Alan holds a couple records with us. First of all, he's one of six farmers who have been to all 27 of the national no-tillage conferences. So that's one of six. But he's got another record besides that. In the first issue of No-Till Farmer in 1973 in November, there was an article in there about Alan's dad, Gil, and Alan, and there's a picture of the two of them in the field. So we've known you forever. That's right. <laughs> so uh, tell me a little about how many acres you're farming at Marcuson and what, what's happening with you. And Okay, right now I've got uh, 2,200 kilo acres. I own them all, and I'm about 75% irrigated. I've slowly increased irrigation. Center pivots? All center pivots. i got 11 center pivots on nine high cap oil. And uh, then I grow principally for one food processor and a little bit for another one. And I grow sweet corn, lima beans, green beans, and green peas. You have corn and soybean? Sweet corn. corn uh, I have uh, just a little bit of field corn. I'm probably going to increase field corn somewhat. I've got one of my fellows that's growing into the operation. He and his dad are going to handle the field corn themselves on a, on a share basis with okay. me. And I can just concentrate on irrigation and vegetable crops. So no-till kind of caught on in Kentucky and one of the things they had was double cropping which makes sense down that area but you've been a double cropper for years right? Yes. And the first crop would normally be peas? Green peas. And then what would you plant after that? Well we can we planted a number of things uh, sweet corn, green beans, uh, soybeans. Okay so if you when would you plant green uh, peas? It's just as early as we can. April it, or May? It's pushing April and it, it, for double cropping. They'll plant peas through May into June, but the later ones, it's not possible to double crop. Right. I tried some peas last year that was a new variety, and they came off a little later than we thought, and it was very dry, so unirrigated, so I just put a cover crop on there. So uh, if you were going to double crop behind peas, when would you like to harvest those peas? Well, as early as possible, but normally the later part of uh, June. Okay. Then, then we've got ample time right. to produce another crop. So you, you farmed with your dad, and he, he worked for the University of Wisconsin, didn't he? Yes. He was the superintendent at Hancock, uh, the research farm, for 10 years. Okay. How did he and you get into farming? 
Well, my, my dad, of course, had grown up on a farm, but then he worked for the state. And then at the, in the early days of uh, uh, irrigation technology in the central sands, he went on his own farming. Mm -hmm. And, and my, the professors, because I went to college then, and just as he had, and, and a lot of the professors were uh, contemporaries of his. So then they'd take me aside and tell me things, and they said, well, <laughs> half of us thought your dad was an absolute fool for leaving the, the uh, employee of yeah. the state. And the other half, well, we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so when he, when he started farming, was he conventional tillage or mineral yes. tillage? In fact, in 1965 or six, we were, uh, he was on the cover of uh, Wisconsin Agriculturist okay. and had a 4020 and a six bottom plow. Wow, that's a state farm magazine. For, yes. Uh, but then he, he, switched, he got into minimum tillage. I think when we did the article in uh, 1973, you were still chisel plowing some at that time. Well, we were using a chisel very shallow. What we've done, and even then what we were doing was simply for weed control and utilizing uh, a tillage trip to control weeds and going very shallow. And this was very upsetting to all of our processors because <laughs> the tillage people felt you had to till often and deep. Right. And we weren't doing either. And so that's what, why we were considered to be so bizarre. Your dad was, when he was superintendent, was, was he an agronomist? Uh, he was, he was, uh, had a Bachelor of Science in Soils. Okay. Just as I do. Uh, but then they had, uh, at the time he was there, there was probably 40 professors that he'd worked with, and they had actually worked, and he had that experience of reduced tillage and no tillage at the research farm. There was never anything published. This was in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so they were, there was some scientists that were looking at this, but they didn't dare want to talk about it because it was so out of the culture. Right. So how'd you get into no-till? Slowly, and actually, I guess it depends on how you want to define no-till. Even today, what there's a hundred different definitions of right. no-till. <laughs> and what I'm doing is, is I may, I, I'm disrupting some soil, but I'm probably not disrupting as much as a strip tiller. But what we're doing is going extremely shallow, just under the soil surface, to control weeds, and then I, I plant in firm, undisturbed soil all the time. That gives us the finest. Uh, performance of the, these seeds and then harvestability. So what kind of soils do you have? What? Mainly plain oil, all silt loam soils. They're prairie silt loam soils and the predominant soil types would be plain and Mendota which are common in Illinois. Right. I've heard you tell me a number of times the processors weren't very happy with you going no-till. Oh no. To even, to even doing what we were doing as a, as a limited amount, they, they uh, one of the processors at that time, when you interviewed us, had in their contracts plowing, fall box, spring box, and they wanted the fall box checked, and uh, they threatened us right away uh, the first year. We and we were longtime growers with them. We don't want a contract unless you plow. Well, my father said, "Why don't you wait and see what happens?" Yeah. Well, then after that, they didn't bother us, and all and I still have all these contracts, and they would always check the fall box because that would go past the headquarters. But I think you told me once that uh, pea harvest or some crop, it was really wet, 
And they, they had a lot of fields they couldn't do, but they could come and do your no-till fields. That's right. It's, and that happened again this year, incidentally. And I, I was using very inch, inch and a half uh, depths of, of eliminating weeds. And then it was a very wet uh, fall. And so lima bean harvest, they harvested for weeks on mine and they knew that they weren't gonna go on some of the other right. fields. But it was because of the residue, it would hold up the pea combines or the- And that, well, pea. not disrupting the soil. Right. Because the, the processors are gonna harvest. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how wet it is. Well, they'll go into these uh, deep tilled fields and they sink in for a minimum depth as deep as it was tilled. Then they might go deeper. <laughs> and that's just not possible. Uh, the pea combines they're using today are, Fifty thousand pounds a piece. Wow! So you got some compaction opportunities there with that that's, kind of weight. That's right. Right. Yeah. Have you grown the acreage over the years? Stayed the same or grown uh, somewhat? Probably when you interviewed us, well, we were I don't know, probably twelve hundred acres or so, and so slowly I, I right. absorbed acreage. At one time, you had fields that were quite a distance from the home place, right? Yeah, and I was spread out more, and Dad always figured, well, we'll absorb some of these, and then we can always trade. So today, where I live, where you came and visited, uh, I go in two different directions, eight miles. So I'm spread out for 16 miles. Oh, that's not as bad as it used to be, oh, is it? No, and, and of course, we were in five townships at one time in two counties. Now I'm down to three townships in two counties. <laughs> I think you told me once that you bought a cheap car to go... Just check on the center pit of irrigations, right? Still, still do. <laughs> I do though too. I have an irrigation truck where I pull a ATV. I have all parts and supplies because they don't run by themselves. You need to look at them. Right. So with that many locations and that many pivots, I just need to do that. So are most of the growers in your area vegetable growers or? Mixed. Mixed. There's, there's, you can walk for literally miles and never be off of vegetable acreage with various growers, but there's field corn, soybeans, uh, some livestock operations. We're quite varied. So why is this a mecca for vegetable production? It historically was soils in our area were naturally productive. So prior to irrigation, fertilization, back in the turn of the, from 1800s to the early 1900s, uh, processors zeroed in on these areas. The processors still have a field man that comes and looks at your crops and checks on them? Yes. Do they get involved in making decisions like on chemicals or fertilizer or not? Not a great deal. No, in fact, it's probably the reverse. They'll ask me. If I ask them, they'll, uh, you know, we can discuss it. Uh, there's more disclosure today. They, there's identity so that, because there's fewer larger growers so that they can actually trace the product back to the field. Mm -hmm. So then we have to file many more reports that they keep on file for what we've done. So is growing vegetables take a lot more management than corn and soybeans? Uh, yes, in a number of ways. Uh, we have to see, we, we have to work with their schedule. Right. Not with ours. We're planting over a longer period of time, various varieties. And uh, while we aren't slaves, they have the final shot. Uh, so you have to, you learn how to work with people. So do they schedule when you're going to deliver the crop and then work backwards to the planting date that you use? Or they do, but they, they, they have the harvesters and control it. 
They also control the planting date. They control the seed uh, acquisition and uh, the type of varieties of the works. And then they have, we have to work with them to fit that into their schedule. So do you deal with days or you deal with heat increments or what? They do. They use uh, both historical uh, data. They'll use uh, and, uh, new uh, varieties. They'll use data from uh, the seed companies. And, and then they also look at heat units. Okay. So it's a combination of uh, ingredients that they use. So what kind of planters do you have for vegetables? Okay, mainly with the row crop planters. Of course, I have to use machinery that everybody else is. So I generally had John Deere planters. I've been using a lot of precision uh, equipment adaptations to the planters. Uh, precision people have even helped me with uh, these various seeds because these seeds are not as easy to plant as commodity crops. And so we use a, a, a 30 inch uh, row crop planter, a John Deere planter for our uh, lima beans, green beans, and sweet corn. Uh, and we'll drill uh, peas with a, a, a drill, and any drill will work. Right. So then you use the same drill for cover crops, right? Yes, we, well, we both drill cover crops and we broadcast and incorporate them. So I'll use both ideas. Earlier in the season, uh, it's more, very cost effective to broadcast, and then I use a VT tool, light incorporation, one pass, to incorporate that seed. Right. Later, and then it depends on what we're looking at, then we'll go to a drill. So I know you on planter attachments, you go back a long ways with Martin Industries and Howard uh, Martin. Tell me your experience with how you got involved with Howard Martin. Well, I always go to Louisville, look at everything, and I drive everybody nuts. Nobody will want to go with me because I poke. <laughs> so I'm poking along and all of a sudden, here is a display with a new looking fingered row cleaner and a video running and a man sitting behind it. That was Howard Martin. And that was the very first time that he'd ever shown his product to anybody and well, gee I thought this was interesting visited with him and went home and subsequently ordered a couple of them to try on my new planter that I just bought and uh, then our uh, association went from there right well, that's great We'll rejoin the conversation with Frank and Alan in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Ingersoll and AgriSolutions, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. Ingersoll specializes in seedbed solutions. Whatever seedbed challenges you have, Ingersoll can give you the right tools to get the job done. For more information, visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. Some people have asked me when I first got started with uh, no-till or conservation tillage, and I can remember as a kid on our farm, which was 40 miles north of Detroit, my dad trying something called the plow plant system. And this is where they mow board plowed, and the next trip over the ground for corn was with a two-row corn planter right on the moldboard plowed land. This was an idea that came from Ray Cook, who was a uh, soil scientist at Michigan State who got really interested in minimum tillage. I think we used this two years and that was it, because if you ever wanted to ruin your kidneys, making a trip with a corn planter over plowed ground was a good way to wreck your 
kidneys. But it got us started on that and it, we were also interested in cover crops early on. So plow plant wasn't the answer, but it led to other minimum tillage systems and eventually to no-till. Now let's get back to our conversation with Frank and Alan Brooks. Plus, stay tuned as Frank answers a listener question about the early days of no-till. I know you have a unique idea on sprayers. Okay. I use pool-type sprayers. I use multiple sprayers. And it's partly it's because of what I'm doing. I understand if I was a corn-soybean grower, I probably wouldn't do quite what I'm doing now. But because we're planting over long periods of time, growing different crops, because I even grow my own cover crop seeds, uh, that we have different spraying requirements that a crop may have different requirements at different times. So I have multiple units so that then I don't have to clean as much. So you have four or five sprayers? I've got uh, five 90-foot pole-type sprayers, 15 to 1,800 gallons in capacity, and I've got one spare that's the oldest one that's just sitting there okay. in case I have a breakdown. So you'd have one sprayer for peas, one for green beans, kind of like that? Or? Yes, well, like in, for the corn, for example, I may involve a couple sprayers, and then I'll have one dedicated sprayer because I use a lot of glyphosate pre-plant, and we, can't, we, we cannot use GMO crops, so we have no uh, uh, Roundup-resistant crops, but we'll use it prior to planting. So I've got one dedicated sprayer that just does that. Right. So like one of your crops, say green beans, mm -hmm. how many different planting dates might you have? Oh, it can be for months. Uh, right now I'm planting mid-June, but you can, they start planting mid-May and they'll plant to later part of July. So you might have green beans you need to spray for the first time, like pre-emerge in three different months, right? Yeah, well, sweet corn is probably the best example okay. in my operation today, although your, your observation is correct. We plant for six weeks sweet corn. Every week? Well, every, maybe every few days. It's oh, whatever wow. schedule they give yeah. me. But it'll span six weeks. So the last sweet corn I plant, the first stuff, I'm done spraying. Totally. <laughs> and I'm still planting. And then I'm planting beans after that. So uh, that's why I utilize more sprayers. Right. Uh, one of the co-ops, well, all the co-ops have expensive self-propelled sprayers. And, and because they're in an environment where they're spraying many crops, they're forever cleaning them. My local co-op that I do a lot of business with had something contaminate their sprayer, and it cost them so much money they traded that sprayer in because they couldn't clean, clean it up. Well, that was very costly. I can own a number of sprayers, and I'm a lot better off than that. You got a separate tractor on every sprayer or not? I've got, uh, I don't have quite, I can mix and match. But I've got uh, four dedicated tractors okay. for spraying. Like sweet corn, how many acres would you plant each time? Basically, they're very good to me. They'll plant whatever block of land I have. We may have to wait an 80 or a hundred, square 160. They'll just let me go plant it in a day. If we've got a couple hundred acres, well, we'd like you maybe to in a field because I've mm -hmm. got some fields that are over 200 acres. So well, if you plant some, don't plant it all in one day, wait, do <laughs> right. it a couple of days. So on, on, on the vegetable crops you have, you don't have to worry about harvest. They come in and they do well, it, or do you? Yes, they come in and harvest. Uh, the grower is responsible for mud on the road. 
Okay. So I have two tractors all season, all because harvest is months. Uh, I'll have, I've got a hydraulic sweeper and I've got a loader with a blade, rear blade. And those, uh, those go right with the harvest through that. Well, that's unusual. I don't know of any farmer that takes care of mud on the road. Oh, in our, no, it's right in the contract. Yeah. So some growers have blades. They all got different things, but I found the, the hydraulic sweeper is not the cheapest, but it's certain conditions that it works well. So if they're in one field, how, how far are you got to get the mud off the road? A quarter mile, half mile, mile? Generally, a quarter to a half a mile will do it. Yeah. Sometimes it's less. Yeah. It just it, it's, it varies. Every field's different. Right. Well, I've been around a long time. I learned something new today. I didn't know that you ever had to have mud control when you're thinking. You said you said you raised your own cover crops. What kind of cover crops are you using? Are you using a mix? Uh, I haven't. I've tried some mixes, but I guess I've got some of my uh, some of the the mix ingredients uh, harbor diseases that would bother the snap beans and lima beans are very sensitive to uh, various diseases and I don't want to harbor them. And so at all costs, I don't grow any cover crop that would host those diseases. So it's, I've, I've tried a few things, but I'm down to basically using spring barley mainly. And then on later crops, later in the season, I'll use some winter wheat. It's interesting because when we when we look at what most people are using cover crops, barley never comes up. I, I know, and, but in our area, uh, you can literally walk from my house and walk for miles and see nothing but spring barley in the fall. Wow. Most of the vegetable people put down cover crops routinely? Outside of my area, no. But within the area that I'm farming, that's uh, an exception if they aren't using a cover crop. Now, do you have a long rotation or a short rotation of crops? It's probably, I use sweet corn because you can monoculture it. And so then what the pinch point in my rotation are the legumes, lima beans and green beans. And so I'm using probably, and peas are even longer. We have to watch that longer. I'm, I'm going to eight, seven, eight year rotation on peas. But on uh, the green beans, uh, four to five years. Uh, and, uh, and lima beans. So then we're filling in with sweet corn and unirrigated, unirrigated because they would desire the irrigated sweet corn. I'll grow sweet corn all the time. Unirrigated, that's where I'm producing some of my uh, grain cover crops as well. These sprayers, how, how fast are you running them in the field and what kind of tires you got on? You got special tires or not? Yes, are you, well, I use narrow tires. They would be the same tires that maybe a self-propelled would use. I like 320 widths. I've got a couple 380 uh, millimeter width. At, uh, I like a little more playroom in my 30 inch rows. Uh, and then we run a, a 120 inch tractor and sprayer. Uh, and I, I use 320 tires with tires on them. And so that works pretty well. And I, well, when I'm going slow, I'm going 10 miles an hour. <laughs> and then when I'm a little faster, I'll maybe go 11, 12. Right. 14. But then you get you get on you get on the road quite a bit with these sprayers, yes. don't you? I purchased recently because some of the people that I can uh, have assist me, they'll. I do all my own spraying. Uh, I'll have them maybe haul to me, so I got a special wagon. Otherwise, I've got a, a protected loading site uh, at the home farm, and so then I come back because I'm only 
Eight miles is the furthest, so I've got many fields that are two, three miles from home base. And so then it's most expedient just to come back and keep all my chemicals at home and then load on the protected loading yeah. site. You, on your bigger tractors, are you still running challengers? Uh, I've got some challengers. I've got, I've got five belted tractors. I've got two John Deere's, two challengers, and one quad drag. So but I, they're all on tracks and stuff. Those are all, yes, those are right. all tracks. And yet, I've seen your uh, drill, it's pretty wide. What width you got? 30 foot. I've got, a, I've got two drills. I've got a 30 foot folding Great Plains drill and I've got a 16 foot United Farm Tools drill. Oh, okay. Well, that United's got some age on it. Oh, yes. That's not a new one, but it still works. Right. What's the future for the farm? You right. and I aren't getting any younger. That's right. And I, and thanks to some of the subjects that you're bringing up and other people have too, uh, I've given it considerable thought. And so I've got a young man that started with me when he was 14 and you met him. He's mm -hmm. here. He's here this year for the first time. And so, and his father is the age of my children. So he's the age of my, he's a grandchild. And so they uh, simply told me, well, they realized my children aren't interested. And uh, they'll certainly work with me as any way we can, and we're looking long term to Great. Uh, have a transition. Good, Alan. Thank yes. you for today. I appreciate well, good. it. Well, I, I enjoy coming here. This is fun. Before we wrap up this episode, Frank is going to share a question that came from a listener email. One of the questions we got from a reader was, when no-till was getting started, it needed support, and where did this support come from? Well, interesting enough, a lot of university people were against no-till at the start, and the people at a number of universities who really got it started were in the Ag Engineering Department, not over in crop science or soil science or agronomy, but the Ag Engineers saw the value of it, and I could name three or four states, Michigan, Iowa, Nebraska, where the agronomists weren't much in favor of no-till, but the ag engineers let it. And then, of course, there's the plant pathologists. And even today, any disease that comes up, you'll still have plant pathologists say, well, the way to fix it is to bury the residue, plow it under. So the plant pathologists were way behind the times when it came to uh, okay and uh, no-till. If you got any other questions you'd like answered, please send them to us and uh, we'll look into them. to Frank Lester and Alan Brooks for sharing these stories about no-tilling vegetables. Similar stories can also be found in Frank's book, From Maverick to Mainstream, which is available at notillfarmer.com forward slash no-till maverick. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Ingersoll and AgriSolutions, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. And once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>